Hey there, just letting you know, right off the bat, Graham's audio is not the best in this episode. I left in as much as I could, cleaned it up to the best of my ability, and then I pieced it together to make sense, even without Graham's missing pieces. You'll still be able to enjoy the episode and learn some stuff from it, but the audio quality, for Graham's track at least, just won't be there. I was thinking about not releasing the episode, but I decided against it, just because I felt like the conversations in this episode would be worth putting up with some noise. We'll try and make sure that this doesn't happen again. Okay, on to the episode. So, uh, a Neutron walks into a bar. He orders a beer. Welcome to the 17th episode of All of the Above, a weekly podcast about design, code, and learning. Uh, Each week, an instructional designer, a user experience designer, and a software engineer take apart the world one topic at a time. So my name is Sean Duran, and I am joined by my co-hosts, uh, Sam Batner. Hello. And uh, Mr. Brian Brush. Hey, guys. And uh, this week, we are joined by a special guest and a comrade of the show, uh, Mr. Graham Welling. How's it going? Oh, it's it's going well. Uh, glad to have you on. And it's good to be here. Yeah. Oh, th- thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You thank us. Um <laughs> So, uh, Mr. Graham, uh, just so uh, people know who you are, what you do, stuff like that, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so my specialty or my background is really in city and regional planning. Um, I went to Ohio State, got a degree in city and regional planning, and actually now I'm going to Cleveland State to get a master's in public administration. Um, but I've always kept that city and regional planning bent. Um, I have some background with mapping as well with GIS and uh, other types of digital maps Um, and you know I am involved in lots of different uh, activities in the city uh, and I currently work for a nonprofit doing environmental protection work as well. Oh cool. Well uh, what's the nonprofit? It's called the Donebrook Watershed Partnership. Um, So I live in Cleveland and Donebrook is uh, a stream that runs between a few of Cleveland's east side suburbs and then goes through uh, University Circle, its main cultural hub, and out to Lake Erie. Oh, cool. So what's the, the project about just like maintaining it and making it better? Or Yeah. Um, so the partnership exists to, well, as their mission statement says, protect, preserve, and promote the Dome Brook. <laughs> um, so nice. we do all of those. <laughs> as long as you're keeping truthful to your word, that's awesome. That is right. Cool. Um, so, uh, anyone else have any other questions for Mr. Graham? Uh, well, well, Graham may not know this, but we established comrade of the show as our nickname for our audience. Um, but it's also fitting for you with, uh, as we were just talking about pre-show, um, because you spent some time in Russia and you and I both actually studied Russian at OSU. So I, I'm happy that there's finally another Russian speaker on the show with us. That's right probably a rare thing <laughs> it's, it seems to be thus far <laughs> yeah it's not the most common language to learn no yeah that's sort of the uh background part of my resume that, that you know i don't necessarily always share with everyone because it seems like it's kind of i don't know not applicable but <laughs> russian's always been a hobby of mine and an interest and i actually lived there for two years um, which definitely gives me a different uh outlook on things here in the u.s and throughout the world definitely as, as well as uh food <laughs> they have that yes <laughs> yes that's true 
Cool. Mr. Brian, if you want to take it away, the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, so as we sort of mentioned, we'll be tackling the topic of maps this week. Um, and I actually wanted to look at something known as cognitive mapping. Um, and in particular, a tool known as the method of loci, uh, which in case any of our audience is particular, can be pronounced loci, loki, loci, or uh, Loki. So any which way that you want, I prefer not to go with Loki because it gets confused with Thor. Um, the Asgardian God. <laughs> yes, the Asgardian God. Uh, with the crazy beetle helmet as seen in the latest movies. But um, Yeah, and Marvel kind of destroyed that, by the way. Oh, uh, really? Done with rant. Okay. <laughs> 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 that was a subtle mic drop. Um, but in episode eight, uh, when we had our friend Connor Mason on and we discussed ebooks, um, we talked about how physical books aid with our memory recall because we can think of where certain information was physically located within the three dimensional book. Um, and our ability to do this to recall information about our environment and physical orientation is known as spatial memory. Um, and we use this form of memory whenever we map out an area or even just a a room in a house. And the tool of spatial memory can be incredibly useful in other areas besides just mapping out terrain. Um, so something known as the method of loci that I had mentioned can greatly aid other aspects of our memory. And what that method is, is also nicknamed a memory palace. And it has us recall cognitive maps and that are firmly established in our memory and use them to help us store new information. So for example, if we think of our childhood home, almost all of us can remember all the rooms, um, specific details about furniture and colors and where things were positioned. Um, and we can then recall that whenever we're gaining new information. So say a set of uh, like phone numbers or a grocery list, which can be difficult to memorize at times. Um, if we, as we're walking through that house in our mind, replace a piece of furniture with um, the number or the item on the grocery list, that can greatly aid us in memorizing the list. So if we were given just off the top of my head here, like a list of banana, kiwi, uh, pineapple, uh, bologna and bacon. Um, as you're moving through your childhood house, you could replace the couch in the living room with the banana and you could replace the refrigerator with the, the kiwi and you could replace the sink in the bathroom with the pineapple, um, <laughs> something else with the bologna and something else with the bacon. It turns into like Pee-wee's Playhouse, but with, but with food. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's especially wonderful if you get hungry a lot and don't want to get off of whatever you're sitting on because it's probably a piece of food now. Um, <laughs> But I'm curious if you guys have ever used uh, the method of loci or if you find yourself using cognitive mapping a lot. Um, so I know with like Graham, you dealing with uh, regional and urban planning and those sorts of things that you, I don't know how or if you guys imply the idea of cognitive mapping and setting up ways for people to better memorize how to navigate um, or if anyone uses cognitive mapping in any other way in their day-to-day -day life. That's a really interesting point about cognitive mapping. I had never thought of it to, uh, to use it as a memory tool, um, but maybe I will now. But in city regional planning, uh, we definitely talk about the effect of cognitive maps. Um, and actually, there's been a lot of research on how people um, envision the city and, in, and remember and relate to um, different areas of the city and, and what they pass through. Uh, for example, I just read uh, an article on the Atlantic City's blog, which is always a great source of information, um, <laughs> about how kids who walk to school 
know a lot more about their neighborhoods and their communities than kids who are driven to school. And they actually did this research by asking uh, groups of children to draw out maps of their town. And the kids who drive to school, or, or are driven to school, I should say, um, they would draw their house, a line, and then the school. And they don't remember anything in between. <laughs> uh, but the kids who walk to school you know, would draw their house, uh, a park, a store, some neighbor's house, something like that, and then the school. So they know a lot more about their community. Um, and actually, cognitive mapping um, is big in city and regional planning right now because um, with new technology, people are interacting with cities in different ways. Um, we have a lot more information about a city, and people are asking, well, how is that going to change our cognitive map of the city? Because now we have easily in our palms an accurate, completely unbiased map. So where does that change? Do we still maintain that cognitive map or does that somehow change? Um, and it's a new era or a new um, topic in research right now among planners and psychologists. I'm also curious, and you may not know to this regard, but with wayfinding techniques out there, which um, like I always keep track of, not necessarily when I'm looking at a city, but if I'm in an airport or something, the way that they communicate where to go and how to get to places and whether wayfinding is like how essentially how that ties into cognitive mapping and whether it makes us abandon cognitive maps and rely more on just signage and various wayfinding strategies to get to places, or if it helps us in that creation of the cognitive map. But that's something that also just popped into my, my mind here. Yeah. I'm not sure about, you know, whether it impacts our cognitive maps. It probably does. Um, but cities definitely are very interested in wayfinding these days. Um, and uh, there are, you know, good wayfinding systems and there are terrible wayfinding systems. And actually, a lot more goes into creating a wayfinding system than a lot of people would realize. A good wayfinding system involves, you know, sending consultants out and really doing a good survey of the neighborhood and talking to people and figuring out, you know, the junctions where people have difficulties and the ones that are easy. Um, and that's not something that can just be you know, looked at on Google Maps and saying, well, you know, obviously you left turn there because, you know, maybe that's a broken link in the neighborhood that's that's tricky. <laughs> if you just provide a sign that gets people over the broken link. Um, for example, here in Cleveland, uh, in our Ohio City neighborhood, there was a particularly troubling intersection where people would always, there was always congestion. And so Ohio City, that the development corporation there, uh, they were doing a wayfinding plan. And the consultant was wondering, well, you know, why is there always congestion there? So they asked people as they were, you know, stuck at this traffic light, where are you going? And everybody was going to a municipal parking lot to park for the West Side Market. What they didn't realize is instead of turning left at that stoplight and wasting a bunch of time stuck in traffic, they could go straight, you know, another block or two, and there was another lot located a similar distance away from the market that was just obscured. And so by adding a sign there, they've pretty much eliminated congestion at that intersection. So it's things like that, that, you know, you would never know without talking to people and understanding how they uh, understand the city and relate mm. to it. And I just realized that we accidentally sort of segued into Sean's topic there. Um, Hello. But yeah, I it, it's interesting how a lot of this stuff that we're going to be discussing in this episode connect to one, an, one another so closely. Um but yeah, we we can disregard all the walls. Let's just let's just mix it all together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yes, we'll just 
completely destroy any cognitive map for or <laughs> or plan we had for the episode. Um, but before, like, I have a segue, segue too far into Sean's topic. Um, Sam or Sean, do you guys ever imply cognitive mapping or find yourself in a situation in which you say are traveling somewhere and have completely lost your way and how you try to restructure your steps or things like that. Yeah. I, I remember going to um, Ireland for uh, a couple of weeks and uh, I haven't been to Ireland since I was like seven years old. So the fact that I, I didn't really know what was going on, like I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have a map. I didn't have anything. I just literally was my girlfriend and I, uh, we, we're just walking around and we just used the, the big, uh, the spire. It's a, just a big, huge metal spire that's just in the middle of dublin and that's how we used uh see like oh we're over there we're on this side of the river that's that far away cool um but for the cognitive mapping of remembering things i've heard it a couple of times but i've always uh disregarded it because i i just felt like it was too cheesy Um, it could help. It probably does. I know lots of people like uh, are like big memory people. Like they can talk to a whole crowd of like fifty people and remember their names just because they do like some kind of relationship. And it might not be a, a map, but they might relate it uh, to other people that they know of or the first letter of their name, um, or something like that. The cheesiness thing was actually something that I had thought when I first heard of this method as well. Um, but then as I started to research it more, it's actually been around even with like its first mention was in Greek and Roman times. Um, the second major like discussion of it was from on the orator from uh, Cicero. So it's been around and applied for a very long time. And there's actually even mentions of it in like contemporary pop culture where with the uh, British Sherlock, the one on BBC, uh, throughout it, he uses memory palaces to help him recall certain information. And there's a whole episode centered around memory palaces, actually. So we'll include a little link to uh, a bit of that in our show notes, which can be found at all of the above audio slash episodes slash zero one seven. But Sam, how about you? Uh, do you ever run into instances in which you find yourself using a cognitive map for aiding your memory or in which you've struggled to recall a cognitive map that you've already created? I don't know if I've ever really used a cognitive map like this. Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to give you a little story. So I travel a lot and I go to a lot of different cities, mostly for leisure, but sometimes for business. And I kind of like to explore the cities. These cities I go into, I have no idea where I am or even why I'm there. I kind of just go to kind of see what's going on. Usually there for a few days and I start to get a pattern in place. And it's all just based off of images or things that I see. And that's kind of how I remember the place I'm at. So I'll get to a hotel or a truck stop. And I'll just remember step by step how to get to the next place I want to go. It really came in handy when I'm in really big cities that don't have like a central point like Tokyo or any of the cities in Japan. There's not really a central point that can kind of navigate back to where you need to go. So it's a path of points that get you to where you want to go so is that a cognitive map i don't know could be (laughs) i would say so it's also with cognitive mapping and the method of loci it's using sort of what you were saying there patterns and specific spots particularly like landmarks are helpful um, to help you recall things and doing so um, makes it easier to store those in your long-term memory which is why when you're given a new list of information and you replace spots along 
that sort of mental map that you've created, it's easier to recall because it's associating it with something that's already stored in long-term memory rather than your working memory or short-term memory as it's colloquially known. But Sean, what was your thought that I heard? Yeah, I was uh, I was just thinking, I, I was just applying the same concept more to the digital space, more like a, you have like files and folders that live mm-hmm. on your computer. And like, have you guys ever put something on your computer and you're like, I can't find it. I just, I don't know where I put it. Yes. If spotlight did not exist, then I would be in a (laughs) world of trouble. (laughs) Yeah. So it like that idea, like, um, since the screen is just what it is and it's just different kinds of pixels, there isn't that sense of like spatial recognition at all. And when you're dealing with just folders and files that are just the only thing that could be different are the file names and the thumbnail attached to them. So if it was a picture of an icon, a photo, what have you. And then going into the, to like that recognition versus recall idea, like that you have probably um, icons on your desktop, uh, dock, what have you. And those are just, they're easy ways to get there. So you might develop some kind of muscle memory to go towards those things. So like the start menu, you, you know, it's at the bottom left-hand corner and they put it there because fits law. Well, I don't think fits law. It's just the fact that you, it's easy to hit the corners easier because your mouse can is sort of bounded by those Mm-hmm. boundaries but after you go for away from there uh it sort of becomes more of a hazy thing that you have to work a little bit harder at unless you uh, have something like spotlight or a search where you can just type in the thing that you're looking for and then you find it and that could be sort of akin to um if you do the, ma- the manual search through your file hierarchy and stuff like that like going into a city and then just doing it based off of what you see and what you can explore. But if you use some kind of search function, that's like pulling out your phone and just typing in like the directions to where you want to get to. So yeah, that's just the the relationship that I had in my head. And that is actually one that I hadn't contemplated is that whole idea of cognitive maps in regard to like a digital environment and how that aids us in searching through. Cause that might be part of why like looking at mobile devices, which often don't have a file hierarchy that Mm -hmm. seems to have thrown off like a lot of people, especially when I look to my parents or others, when they first started using smartphones, it was confusing to them because they weren't able to establish that sort of file hierarchy and know where things go and where they're put. Um, And they had to rethink sort of how they interact with a digital screen or environment. Yeah, because the metaphor of the desktop was literally taken from the top of a desk. <laughs> um, and have you guys ever seen like Microsoft Bob? Oh, Lord. the Where it was like a house type thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sam, Sam and Graham. Have you ever seen Microsoft Bob? No. Nope. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll just send a picture. It, it was just the most ridiculous thing. You had to click on the desktop to go see your files and folders and then you'd have to click on the alarm clock that's sitting on the desk to look at your time and you have to click on the calendar that's on the desk to see the calendar and then you have to jump back out and stuff like that oh that sounds so 1990s i love oh yeah no it was and that that's not just like a program that is the operating system so you you start up your computer and then that that's it you're in your living room or office and then that's how it is so they took that very literally oh yeah no uh i don't know how long it lasted uh but it, it i think i think it's still considered <laughs> one of the worst like user interface experiments of all time but oh yeah yeah but since we're sort of talking and we had already began to hit on your topic sean but now that we're talking about sort of navigating and knowing where to go and how to direct people such as placing yeah. something in the corner because that's where they would be bound by limits um do you want discussing wayfinding with us yeah sure just like wayfinding and navigating through a foreign city 
um, which you would have to, instead of rely on reading things, you would have to rely more on landmarks, uh, symbols, and icons that are on signs. And do you guys know any that are just signs that are just purely text? And if you ha- didn't read those, I know one that is at least humorous to me, which was when I spent time in Germany, the exits on the highway uh, to an American, it looks like the sign says asphalt. Um, <laughs> and the, the first time I saw it, I just laughed hysterically. and I had no idea what it was telling me. And I was apparently in the exit lane, <laughs> which is, it was funny to think that that's how you exit too. Cause you know, fart, farts and asses, but yeah. Um, I know from traveling around, so when I was in Russia, I got the opportunity to travel around a lot of Russian cities, um, and then I also went to Ukraine and Rome while I was over there. And uh, at the time, you know, I had a Russian phone, but it was like a real dumb phone, you know, absolutely, it it made calls, and that was (laughs) um, no kind of mapping or anything. Um, So especially when uh, my friend and I were traveling around Ukraine, uh, we had and we were bad travelers and we did absolutely no preparation whatsoever. You know, we just showed up in Kiev and we're like, Oh, all right, let's see this city. You know, I think one of us had maybe looked at a Google map once. I don't know. (laughs) Um, but you know, we show up and wayfinding is kind of, I mean, it's, it's not, it's there, but it could be a lot better. Um, fortunately European cities have very good public transportation. So we were able to get around on that. Um, but, you know, what I noticed in Europe, um, and in Russia in particular, is people ask directions all the time. You know, if you're just walking down the street, it's maybe not a daily thing, but someone will ask you for directions probably once a week or so. Um, and, you know, usually as a poor foreigner, I had no idea, you know, how to tell somebody to get to some street I'd never heard of, but I knew that I could always do the same thing, and people were quite helpful. Um, people would always show you where to go, and usually their directions were correct, although not always. Um, But, you know, that experience is something that I don't think we have as much in the U.S., um, even in a big city like New York, probably because, you know, both of better wayfinding, um, an easier to understand street grid. You know, New York's so simple, everything's just numbers and streets and avenues, and it's quite easy. and now with digital mapping uh, and technology, it's like you really don't have to talk to anybody because you know your your phone can tell you where to go. You don't have to mm-hmm. talk to people. So um, I think that was an interesting difference that uh, you know we just don't see a lot of in the U.S. Even culturally, it's interesting to me to think about how within other countries and Russia being like an example where they aren't afraid to ask for those directions, whereas in the United States, like even if you are in rural communities where the streets aren't as evenly laid out on grids, um, it's considered bad if you have to ask for directions and particularly with, uh, like the male stereotype that it is considered unmasculine to ask. And that's just a interesting cultural difference too, that has maybe led to to better wayfinding as a result. um, that, that like cultural stereotype might've promoted people developing better systems for finding where you're going but sean what what were you gonna say i know in ireland my mom used to well my mom used was from ireland is from ireland not was is and um she's like yeah every time that people like ask for directions if they they usually gave them the wrong ones um they just (laughs) they led them astray they're like oh yeah you you take a two roads down take a left at the big hay bale um keep going keep going um take a right at the barn 
and then uh, it splits at some point, and then you'll you'll take a right on that one, and then <laughs> and they just let them go, and then that's uh, like if that's if a foreigner is in Ireland and you get directions from a stranger that is like an Irish person, uh, be wary uh, of where they're leading you. <laughs> the other thing I, I guess uh, was um, with the grids um, it has nothing to do with wayfinding, but grids are great for organizational OCD people and just finding things, but they don't really appreciate the actual landscape of a place that well, unless it is a completely flat piece of land that you can do whatever you want with. At one point you were doing um, some kind of class with like wind studies. Through. I don't know like how that would, the grids affect on the environment of a city. Yeah. I mean, grids work, like you said, really well when the terrain is flat and there are no obstacles. Although in the mm-hmm. U.S. we've forced grids on very not flat terrain as well, yeah, um, which is kind of silly, I guess. But if you go to a city like Cincinnati, where I mean, just because of the terrain, it's it's impossible to have a grid throughout the city that makes sense. Just the hills are too steep. Um, it's really difficult as uh, you know an outsider to find your way within that city. You know, I, I just always get lost when I go to Cincinnati and, or, or Pittsburgh as well. I mean, it's much more complicated because, you know, I'm used to nice, clean, straight streets that intersect at right angles. Um, and to go to a city where they're not and try to think, you know, when am I going north? Am I going south? You know, where am I? It's much more difficult. And it's interesting that, you know, my brain at least is conditioned to always you know, look for like the, the straight lines and even intersections that, you know, are a part of growing up here in Cleveland and in, you know, the flat Midwest. Yeah. The first time I ever drove by myself into Cincinnati was a nightmare. And it took me a while to realize like, oh, everything's kind of just in circles and I just need to get off this loop that I'm on and move one loop down and then I'll be able to find what I was looking for, um, which is just like in Pittsburgh where they have those same sort of like outer circles that spiral in towards the city. Um, but it does really throw us off in, in Sean, to your point um, about sort of environmental interference. Uh, like when I look at Chicago, which you and I had been talking about before and they have their nice little grid until you hit the river and then stuff gets a little jacked and then it goes back to the grid. Um, and driving in those environments where you get used to that straight linear path and then all of a sudden it gets thrown off by the environment is incredibly confusing and makes sort of finding your way around much more difficult. And I'm not sure that it is any more difficult in terms of like the way the streets are. It's just that sort of break or discombobulation from grid to no longer having a grid is uh, alarming and maybe just makes me panic more, but it seems to <laughs> also result in worse wayfinding as a result. I just blame that on the cab drivers. <laughs> yeah. Another example of that would be lower Manhattan. You know, most of Manhattan is very grid and angular and easy to navigate. But if you go, I think it's south of like 14th Street in Manhattan, uh, all the streets are just on crazy angles and everything's intersecting all weird. And you have no idea as, you know, you're walking around a poor tourist, you're like, but wait, I thought this ran into Wall Street somewhere. Where am I? Um, it's much more difficult. Sean's dropping in uh a reference in our, our uh, Skype chat here about 99% Invisible, which has a few really nice episodes actually on wayfinding. But Sean, you had mentioned the big sort of like needle within, was it Dublin? Is that where you said that you had saw Yeah, this? the Dublin Spire. 
Okay. That is the official name. Like I, so I am awful in terms of navigation and I wish every place had just a giant, like here is the center of the city and <laughs> it's very clearly labeled via this giant tower. And then I would probably be able to find my, my way around so much better. Oh yeah. Like it has no other use. It is just a big spire, big thing of metal just goes straight up. You can't go in it. You can't climb it. Well, you could probably climb it, but yeah, that's all it does. It probably has some kind of significance, but I don't know. Big that. Lightning rod. Big lightning rod. Yeah. <laughs> Sam. With that, it, Yeah. Yeah. What is this? What, what have you written? I don't understand. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's going to get really weird. Okay. Well, sorry, Graham. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was my transition. <laughs> here, here, here we'll, we'll, we'll record a transition for you. So now that we've talked a little bit about wayfinding, Sam, your topic is pathfinding algorithms. So do you want to jump into that for us? Yeah, I'll jump into it. <laughs> so pathfinding is really just that it's finding a path shortest distance between two points kind of kind of yeah kind of because usually there's a lot of other other things between those two points so it's getting from point a to point b in the shortest amount of time we'll just say that just for to make it easy on people so the way this works is uh through something called graph theory which is a mathematical theory and has a little bit of computer science play in it now but where say you're looking at a table and you have a bunch of little dots everywhere. Each one of those dots represents a part of the graph. We will call those dots nodes. All right. And we're trying to find the shortest point between two given nodes going through other nodes. So we go from one node to another and we find the shortest point. Mm -hmm. There are things out there that do this. If you look at a map or a GPS that you use, it uses roughly the same sort of thing, graph theory. So the way that a lot of these GPS systems work is every single intersection, possible intersection, is a point. And we're trying to find the shortest point from me to you, Sean. It would go from each one of these points, intersections, and tell us to turn right, turn left, go straight, or depending on what type of intersection it is, it'll tell us how to get there. And eventually we will find the path to you. And if it's fancy enough, it'll account for traffic, road conditions, etc. Yeah, but we're not going to focus on that with pathfinding algorithms. Okay. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into play. Okay. And so this is just finding the shortest path. Then there's other things that like have to do with traffic lights and time of day and all kinds of other crazy stuff. Okay. And we're not dealing with a uh, tesseracts either. <laughs> no, we're not going to No, we're not dealing with that. Okay. <laughs> So there's a guy out there, he's Dutch, I believe, but uh, Dijkstra, and he has a really weird spelling of his name, but there's Dijkstra's algorithm, which is a way to take this graph and find multiple paths. So it gives you many different options to get to this point. And the way it gives you the options is each of these little nodes has a weight. One of these nodes you could rely really heavily on, so it gives you a larger weight there. So it takes a lot less to get there. Then other algorithms have come from this. There's a depth first search, which kind of, if you're looking at a graph, say from the top down, like a Christmas tree, <laughs> we'll go down, we'll go down each individual branch and kind of find the shortest path that way. There is breadth first search, which kind of just iterates through and goes from one piece to the next to the next. And it finds the shortest algorithm or the shortest path. Then finally, there's the A star algorithm 
which this kind of goes through and does a combination of everything and finds you the shortest path based on Dijkstra's algorithm. So all of this kind of goes into play when you want to search from point A to point B on some sort of GPS system. So some people, crazy intelligent people out there, some mathematicians, computer scientists, they all came up with this and created it. There's a problem with this, though. Tell us. There's something called the traveling salesman problem. So the following question is, given a list of cities and the distances between each pair of cities, what is the shortest possible route that visits every city exactly once and returns to the original city? I, I, I have an answer, I think. What's your answer? Um, if the salesman dies... Uh, and his ashes are <laughs> thrown into the wind uh, from an airplane. That is uh, that is the second. That's the sequel to Death of a Salesman. Spoiler! Spoiler alert. <laughs> so what this actually turns into is this is this is pretty much an impossible problem to solve. It's what uh, mathematicians and computer scientists called a non-deterministic polynomial time hard problem. My head hurts. So. <laughs> I know. Keep with me here. Keep with me here. This, yeah, this is this is one of my favorite things about computer science is just algorithms. Okay. So so uh, non-deterministic polynomial time is really hard. It's like infinity. We'll say that's infinity. Well, well, so wait, 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 wait. So oh, so polynomial mean okay. Non-deterministic we'll just, means infinite. Just to make this simple. <laughs> We'll say this is infinity. So non-deterministic polynomial time is infinity. This, we'll just say NP for short. So this is an NP hard problem. NP is infinity. NP hard means infinity plus one. So it's harder than infinity to solve. Oh. So there's a lot of different ways to go about this, but really it ultimately turns into a brute force algorithm, which every single point you go every possible path and that way you find the shortest point. There are supercomputers out here that run these uh, GIS systems uh, that kind of find these shortest points. So when you put something in, it already kind of has a hash table or something already out there that kind of gives you generally the best point from or best directions from point A to point B. Now, now, for the people that don't know what a hash table is, can you just uh, explain that? We're going to separate things into buckets. So this is in that bucket, this is in that bucket, this is in that bucket. ABC. ABC. We'll say ABC. The data in each of these buckets is probably completely random, but we have a little algorithm that goes through and searches the entire bucket. And it looks for whatever it can find. If it can't find it, it goes to the next bucket and then the next bucket. So this is a quicker way for us to find exactly what we're looking for. So we don't have to go through all of the data. Yeah, so say bucket A contained everything about fast food restaurants and bucket B contained everything about high dining. Uh, and we wanted to, instead of typing high dining or names of high dining restaurants, we would just say, give me all of the information from bucket B. I've never heard of high dining. No, me neither. This is... Do you mean like fine dining? Yes. Okay. High dining. Okay. High dining, maybe like you mean like an airplane? Hmm. High dining could could also probably apply to fast food depending upon your current drug induced state, but <laughs> I mean White Castle, that's high dining, right? Oh. Highest. <laughs> <laughs> there are these things going on in the background that people don't really think about, and it's more of like kind of like a first world problem, like, oh my GPS told me that I could get here to here in 10 minutes and it's taken me 25. Well, you know what? I hate you oh. <laughs> because some crazy intelligent person 
put a lot of time into this and is making it work. But then you have people who get in wrecks, probably from Pennsylvania. There's a lot of anger coming Mm. out of you right now, Sam. (laughs) Yeah. This is similar to the anger that you had for kids and dogwood trees. All right. So here, here's my question to everybody to kind of find out what you guys think. So how would you, without having any of this with you, find the shortest distance between two points? <sighs> uh, I wouldn't, because as I've already mentioned, I suck when it comes to navigating. Uh, unless you drop me off in the middle of the woods, and then I'm totally fine. But if you put me <laughs> in a city, for some reason I get lost. But I often just defer to patterns to know how to get between two places and will sometimes take a path that is not the shortest just because it is the one that is most familiar. Um, Although I am not as bad as some of our friends, like a friend of ours that we all used to work with who would go. um, So 270, which is a road around Columbus, she would start at the the top of 270 (laughs) instead of going uh, just like, 10 miles right, she would go all the way around to the left and it's 270 is just a big circle until she got to the point that she needed. Um, so I'm not that bad. But I s- That was one of the greatest things I ever heard, by the way, when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, wow. I don't even... <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question about, you know, how without the aid of, of digital devices or whatever how do we find the shortest distance between two points, which obviously people have been doing for, you know, all of human history, except for the last 20 years or so. Um, that, that's, you know, probably it would be mostly familiar paths that you sort of lump into, you know, you say, well, I can get from my apartment to the library pretty quick. And then if I turn right, I can, you know, get down to, I don't know, the gym faster that way or something. It'd be something like that. Yeah. Which, um, like may that sort of tying in like what you're familiar with and then relying on that uh, would probably be how most of us would end up doing this. I I also think too of um, destination paths, which I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that, but there's even a whole subreddit devoted to it, which is, Oh um, oh yeah. Natural paths. Yeah. Yeah. So when um, say like somebody designing a sidewalk on a university makes just this straight line from one spot to another spot. And then you start noticing that in the grass, there's this worn down path that sort of curves off to the right to go towards a a building that's used more often than what the sidewalk leads to. Um, And so that destination path or natural path that people choose to follow, I wonder if there are indications of that throughout sort of like streets and towns and stuff where you might see, oh, hey, the paint on the road is much more worn down here. Maybe that's because everybody takes this path to get to point A or B, um, or you would just look for those destination or natural paths carved into the ground via walking. But Sean, did you have any thoughts on the shortest distance between two points and how to find it? The thing I was thinking about, like if that is your goal, like just efficiency, then that, then that's a concern. But sometimes like the time limit isn't what you're really concerned about. The goal might be more of like a scenic route. Another five minutes, we'll go down this road. It looks a lot better than this other way. It, the other way is faster. Yeah, no, no doubt. Like it is. Uh, but this other way, it looks a lot better. It's a lot more fun. Uh, it's just a better drive and stuff like that. So it just really depends on the goals of the people that are going from point A to point B. Because I know uh, Graham and I separately with the same people uh, walked from one place to another. And it, it definitely was not the most efficient way of doing it. I don't know. Did you guys use a map 
at all to find like the shortest way to go to your place. Uh, wait a minute. Let me let me remember what time this was. Yes, yes, yes. A little back history is that myself and then Curtis Cook and then Tim Modell, two other guys that we know went to high school with. Right after we graduated high school, that summer, Curtis, Tim, and I, we walked from Curtis's house to uh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it, it took about three-ish days. We had a map, but we really didn't know what we were doing. We just pretty much, we just walked down roads. And once it came point to uh, finding a place to sleep, then it was like, uh, I guess this is the closest place. <laughs> um, so that's what we, I did. But I, I wasn't on the second leg of the journey, which they, they continued where we stopped to I don't know where. So yeah, a place in that's right, and I think we we covered a lot more ground than you guys did, right? I think so because since that was the first time any of us did that, and it was raining part of the time. It, yeah, oh, the walk to, to and then you know, so your guys's was the walk to Pennsylvania, and then yes, I joined and we walked you know a sixth of the way across Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a really huge state. Yes, it is. Uh, but yeah, we covered about. You know, anywhere from 15 to, I think our best day, we might have covered 20 miles in one day, um, which is a lot. Yeah. And, you know, we had we had maps, of course. We knew a pretty good route of where we were going, um, although we did ask people for directions along the way, um, and actually, we changed our final destination city. I, I don't remember what city we set off to go to. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming we did have a destination in mind, I don't know. But uh, we changed because people along the way recommended a different city, um, or I shouldn't call it a city, Tyanest, Pennsylvania. I think about 500 people live there. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess we were aided by good weather, and, uh, you know, once you get out away from, you know, the highway in Pennsylvania, it's it's really quite open. So there weren't many places to stop. You know, there was really nothing to do but walk. Because mm-hmm. uh, before we did any of that, the idea of biking uh, was brought up. But the, the fact that with biking, you wouldn't get that stopping with people and talking to them as much interaction because you are going faster. When you're walking and you're walking by someone's house, like it takes maybe a minute or two to walk by. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they see you coming and then they see you leaving. And if they drive... And they drive past you, and they're like, I saw you yesterday. Yeah, that happened a couple of times. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, the, the goal there wasn't necessarily the shortest route between our final destinations. But each day, we sort of had a destination in mind, which was, you know, a place to sleep. So mm-hmm. um, that motivated us, of course. Uh, so we, we did choose more or less the fastest way. I think one time we avoided um, a you know, more major highway just because we didn't want to be out there with all the trucks and, you know, stuff whizzing by us. Um, so that would be an example of, you know, some other consideration that came into play that caused us to choose not the shortest route. Yeah. Sorry to hijack that, uh, the algorithms. That's right. I, I, I needed something like that to help calm my mind back down from trying to understand what the hell Sam just told us. Um, well, if you guys ever want to talk about it, we could talk for days. <laughs> Well, we can do it when we're trying to hike to various spots in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yep. Another sixth of the way across the state. Yes. <laughs> um, but since my mind is still hurting a fair amount, uh, do we want to sort of segue into our final thought, Sam? All right. So my final thought today is a joke. And it's actually a really good joke that someone 
told me a long time ago, and I'll probably never forget it because I absolutely love it. So uh, a Neutron walks into a bar. He orders a beer. He asks the bartender how much. The bartender looks at the Neutron and says, for you, no charge. <laughs> that was the... That's a high school chemistry teacher joke, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Particularly a high school chemistry teacher who is a father. So that was episode number 17, All of the Above. Maps with Mr. Graham Willing. Head over to allofoftheabove.audio slash episodes slash 017. You'll see show notes and links to everything we talked about. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took the time to rate our show in iTunes. And we've made it pretty simple to do. If you head over to allofoftheabove.audio slash review, you'll be taken straight to our iTunes page. If you left a review, that would be even better. Or if you could just tell one of your friends about the show, it'd be the bee's knees. Join us next Tuesday for episode number 18, Concerts with Zach Cramp. It's the basis of Plane to Vapors, an awesome local Columbus band that will actually be playing Bunbury Music Festival in Cincinnati, Ohio. So until next Tuesday, don't get lost out there.